Good morning. Our passage this morning is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It doesn't get any sweeter than to have a baptism as a church family. A picture, exactly what Chris said, of being rescued from the waters of God's judgment and being brought back to life, there's no greater picture. And I, it's hard to come up here and want to preach after, after seeing that. There's, there's no fonder thing I look forward to in the body than to see God moving in his church. Caleb, your life, wherever he is, is marked by the Lord, by that baptism. All right, let's pray and please let's ask the Lord for help as we look at God's word. Father, we thank you for your word that the grandest thing that we are doing as a church right now is to hear from you, to hear from your word because it changes lives. It warms us, convicts us, encourages us, moves us, reminds us of your grace and your love and all that you've done in Jesus Christ. Father, we are indebted to you and we love you. And Father, I, I pray for this message and for this text that this would be like Christmas for those who do not know you. That they would turn from their sins and receive the free gift of life in Christ. Lord, would you turn, would you turn their exile into joy? Restore their souls, Lord. May the testimony of Caleb move those who do not know you here to what life is by grace through faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Christ be magnified in this time. Amen. I'm going to get it together. I'm going to get it together. Um, church, this is, uh, this is one of those series. This is the last Sunday of Advent and uh, I'm, I'm excited that this series is coming to an end because that means next Sunday is Christmas. And after Christmas, we look forward and we start marching to Easter. We start thinking about the Lord dying and rising again. I want to start off with a thought about movies. The difference between good movies 
and great movies is one thing in particular. You need a good director. Everybody agrees with that. that. That's important. You can't have a good movie unless you have a good director. You can't have a good movie unless you have good actors. You've got to have a good cast. You've got to make sure that there's good chemistry amongst the team. That's, that's needed. That's necessary. You also need to pick the right genre. You can't, you know, have an excellent movie that's a scary movie, at least in my opinion. It's got to be like, like Downton Abbey or something. It might not also be up to set design. You know, that, that, that's something that you have to think about. Costumes, those are, those are needed, but that doesn't make it great. It's good, but it's not great. What's the one necessary thing? Music. You need the score. You need a good, yeah, yeah sorry, you're wrong. It's, it's, it's music. You need, you need a good score because a score does so much. The music in a movie makes the movie. Everybody knows Star Wars. Everybody knows Jaws. Everybody knows Downton Abbey. But you need good music because in that music, there are themes, themes of the main character, of the wise sensei figure that is helping the protagonist work through whatever crisis they're going through. You're thinking about the villain. It helps you as the audience understand and, 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 and be rem- reminded of the main character, of the, the struggles they've gone through, of the, the valleys they've gone through and the mountains they've overcame. And it also cues you into things that are happening before they happen. When you hear dum, 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 that you know the bad guy's coming on the scene. You know that Vader's about to come before the main character does. When you hear the Jaws music, you know before the guys in the boat do that there is a shark in the water. If you watch Marvel movies, every superhero has their own superhero theme. And then in the, the big movies where everybody's together, they pan from each one of the superheroes, and you hear flares of their theme songs from their standalone movies, but yet it's in this one ginormous melody in order to help you recall their individual contribution to the team, but it's something new and exciting. And that's what Matthew's doing, in a sense, here in Matthew 2. He's taking themes from the Old Testament, and he's playing, you don't even realize it, he's playing themes, music of the tales of Israel while playing the main theme song of Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking at here. Dale Allison, in his commentary, helpfully writes that in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is proving that Jesus is the culmination and fulfillment of all of Israel's history. And in chapter 2, Matthew is showing how Jesus is reliving that history. He's recapitulating Israel's history in chapter 2 of Matthew, what we're studying here. So we see in chapter 1, the genealogy proves that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and to David, and that he would be the hope for his people in exile. Well, who is this Jesus who is the Messiah? The next section we see that he's not only the son of David, but he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. How is God dealing with the problem of Genesis 1 through 11? How is he dealing with our sin? He sent Jesus, the Davidic ruler, but it is God himself who has come to unilaterally save his people from their sins. And chapter 2 is a wonderful retelling of Israel's history through the story of the Magi and of Herod and of Jesus going to Egypt and returning to Nazareth. It's showered with various juxtapositions of characters and locations and virtues of blessings and curses, of flourishment and suffering, of true religion and false religion. The whole point of Matthew chapter 1 and 2 is to do exactly what we've been doing for the last four weeks, church. Behold the King. In this passage that we're studying, we are moving from seeing Jesus as the greater Davidic king to him being the greater redeemer, greater than Moses. Without chapter 1, without the virgin birth, without the promises of the Old Testament of God's salvation being fulfilled, what we're about to study would be impossible to do. In the passage that we're studying today, we're going to be looking at how Matthew is moving from how Christ fulfills everything to, again, 
reliving. We see how Christ, or excuse me, Matthew um, is ushering in, excuse me, Jesus in Matthew 1 is ushering in a new Genesis. Chapter 2, you could probably write in, in the side notes of your Bible that he is bringing in the new Exodus. New Genesis, chapter 2, new Exodus. The news of this passage is that Christ is ushering in a new Exodus by being true Israel and a greater Moses and of undoing the exile caused by our unfaithfulness. Let me say that again. The news of this passage is that Christ is ushering in a new Exodus by being true Israel and a greater Moses in undoing the exile caused by our unfaithfulness. Next Sunday, Christian, is Christmas. The good news of Christmas morning is everything that this text is talking about. Grander than the joy that we could feel from gifts or family around the table or the smells of Christmas trees or cinnamon rolls in the oven or hearing Christmas music or laughter in the living room, the joy of Christmas is that Christ was born to do exactly what that baptismal showed in a beautiful pitcher of water, that we can be restored and saved from our sins because of Christ. That's a sermon in itself right there. That being said, this is the point of the passage. Anything to take away, it is this. The fulfillment of God's promise of salvation is found only in the redeeming work of King Jesus. The fulfillment of God's promise of salvation is found only in the redeeming work of King Jesus. And we're going to see that in three points. We're going to see it first in verses 13 through 15, the new Exodus, and then 16 through 18, a new covenant, and lastly, verse 19 through 23, a lowly king. So join me with me, point one, verse 13. So Matthew preached last week, our Matthew Williams uh, preached last week about the Magi and of Herod. This is a continuation of that story in a sense. The very first clause, now when they had departed, is tied to that story. We, we see that this is on the heels of the Magi leaving Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. We see that this is the continuance of the story of the very first phrase here. And now when they left, there's an action that takes place. An angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Have you guys noticed how many times, like the angels are working overtime in these two chapters. They're, they're everywhere. They're leading stars. They're talking to people in dreams. They're going to be ministering to Jesus in the wilderness in a couple chapters. And here we see them again, God's messenger from heaven coming to Joseph and leading him, warning him of an event about to happen. And this shows us right from the get-go of God's meticulous and miraculous governance of everything in his universe. An angel warns Joseph of an event about to happen, about how this Herod, this evil man, would try to destroy our Messiah. And what does Joseph do? He takes his family to Egypt, but he's thinking about two things. He's not going, all right, angel, thank you so much. You know, I was thinking maybe we could go to Egypt instead of Nazareth because I was reading Hosea 11, out of Egypt I call my son. You've seen the connection. We could go there. Wasn't thinking that. Joseph had two concerns here, obeying the Lord and caring for his family. I mean, Joseph is a, a figure that I particularly love. He doesn't talk in these chapters. He's just described. And he's a paragon of courage and of, of righteousness. He is a perfect example. There's not many of those in Scripture given to virtues, but Joseph is one of those. Daniel, you see him in the book of Daniel as a perfect example of courage. We see here of Joseph being a, a man of faith and of righteousness. This man loves his family. This man wants to honor the Lord. And yet after this action, Matthew informs us that this fulfills what's written in Hosea chapter 11. Out of Egypt, I called my son. In the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel, there are six locations mentioned. Six locations. And each one of those locations has a reaction from any one of his readers. Any one of them. If I said to you, Washington, D.C., 
you would think political capital of the United States, politicians. If I said Richmond, you'd say it's the state capital. Once used to be the Confederate capital. It was an influential city in the Revolutionary War. You might think of Edgar Allan Poe or Patrick Henry or a slew of presidents buried in Hollywood Cemetery. If I mentioned if I could say it, Honolulu, Hawaii, you would be thinking of a vacation spot. If I mentioned Louisville, Kentucky, you'd be thinking of distilleries and the Kentucky Derby, hopefully. So in Matthew's gospel, when he first mentions Babylon, we know what he means. It's not inconsequential. When he mentions Bethlehem, we're thinking city of David. When he mentions Jerusalem, we're thinking of the religious capital. We're thinking that's where the temple is. That's where the presence of God used to be in Solomon's temple. And now here we are in verse 15 of chapter 2, and Matthew mentions Egypt. Everyone knows Egypt because the exodus of God's people from Egypt. The exodus from Egypt is the greatest and most referenced event in the Old Testament. Most everything in the Old Testament comes back to the exodus in Egypt. It's the greatest story. So when Matthew says, out of Egypt I called my son, we're thinking of God's greatest story ever of redemption. That's what we're thinking of. The exodus was a story of God's people who had been enslaved for 400 years under the Egyptian and through God's prophet, teacher, and redeemer Moses saves his people and he destroys his enemies. And Matthew here is cueing us as the reader to associate Jesus with this new and greater exodus. What Matthew is doing again, retelling history of Israel through the life of Jesus. He's showing that Jesus is reliving that history. He is taking the story of the exodus and he's laying on top of it the story of Jesus. And as light shines through, we actually see that the exodus was a shadow of what was to come in Jesus Christ. As wonderful as that story is, Christ is better. And what Matthew is saying by quoting Hosea 11, associating Jesus as God's son and of Israel in the account of the Exodus, one of the most substantial doctrinal claims he could make. I want that to sit for a second. He's making a big claim, guys. This Jesus who's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, this virgin birth, this redemption, what, what, is, what is he saying? What is this Jesus going to be in the rest of Matthew's gospel? What is he going to be like? What's his mission? Matthew is making the claim that Jesus came, that God became man to redeem a people. That's the claim. That's a hot take. That there was a problem likened to that in Egypt of spiritual slavery to sin that needed a redeemer to come and redeem that people from their sin. Not bad attitudes. Jesus didn't come to give you a a better perspective on life or just a try harder mentality or, hey, just follow the leader. You see how meek and lowly I am? Feed the poor. Say some nice things. Don't offend people. Don't get on Twitter. Christ came to save sinners from their sin by taking their sin upon him and dying in your place as your representative. That's Christmas. That's that's the redemption that we need. And in a day and age where Jesus is the wise guy or a good person or a social justician or an excellent example of sacrifice or of compassion or social causes, or of meekness, or whatever other tale you want to pin on the donkey. What humanity needs is a solution to the Genesis 1 through 11 problem. We need our sin forgiven. We need a Savior. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, for you, Christian, but also for you, whoever you are in this room, who do not know the Lord, That's the good news for you, that if you would repent and that you would turn from your sins, that you can be saved, that you don't have to be enslaved to sin. Misery and suffering does not have to be your story 
And that is what we as a church celebrate and what we look forward to next Sunday, that Christ came, that grace was showered on us, an undeserved people suffering in our sins. What you need this Christmas isn't more things or your family's affirmation of your lifestyle. What is needed most is for Christ to redeem you because we cannot save ourselves. What I need is an awareness of how much of a debtor I am to God's grace. So this fulfillment of Scripture is is that the Christ child is in fact the salvation for humanity's history. This exodus is only possible because God came down and unilaterally only, only him's on the table. Only he's doing the work. We're not on, we're, the only thing that we're doing is providing the sin that required him to come down in the first place. He's doing it all. He didn't send a pill to solve humanity's issue. He didn't give us a book to read. He didn't give us a list of actions that would justify us. He didn't give us a priest to forgive us of our sins or a saint to pray to for our intercessions or the Lord's Supper or a baptism to give us salvific grace. He gave us his son to die for you, to die for your sins. Herman Bovink says this in his wonderful book called The Wonderful Works of God. Thus, the whole revelation of the Old Testament converges upon Christ, not upon a new law or doctrine or institution, but on the person of Christ. What Matthew's doing, he's taking all that light from the Old Testament and he's focusing it on the prism of the cross. All of it, the exodus is pointing to Christ. And what we're going to see here next is that Israel points to Christ. Moses points to Christ. Exile points to restoration in Christ. All of it points to Him. All of God's demands, all of God's promises, all of His love and affections, dear brothers and sisters, His salvation is found in the person of Jesus Christ alone. There's not a plan B There's not an alternative to salvation. It is in Jesus alone. And when we, all Christians, when we were baptized, that was our testimony. There is no other way. There is no other way. Christ is my plea forever and always. Persecute me. See my fruit that he changed my life. I think of the Samaritan woman. Come see the man who's told of everything I've done. So let's look at how Jesus Christ, King Jesus, is the true and better Adam. Not only is it a greater exodus, but look at, the, look at the quote again. Out of Egypt I called my son. When you read that, you should be like, all right, so is that like, did Hosea know that Jesus was coming? Well, sort of, yes. Is that Jesus or is that Israel? Yes. As, as, uh, as a son, I hated when my parents said that. I was like, that wasn't a yes, no question. That was, it's either this or that, Yes. And that's what Hosea is doing here. We see that he is associating Israel in the Exodus and Moses with Jesus. We get a picture in Hosea of God's steadfast love in this chapter specifically of Hosea. But there's a lot of places that Matthew could have gone to to make that connection, that, that Jesus was Israel. A lot of places, but he chose to go to the prophets. And the prophets, if there's anything to know about the prophets, you just, you want like the bumper sticker of the prophets, they were watchdogs for God's covenant. That, that's what they did. You can turn anywhere in the prophets, which can be daunting, especially in your Bible reading plan. Um, maybe that's where we lost you in a Bible reading plan, is you get to, the, you, you made it past Leviticus, Ecclesiastes, all's vanity. You make it to the prophets, what are they saying? What they're getting at is they're calling out God's people for their unfaithfulness to the covenant as seen in the book of Deuteronomy. And so that's where Matthew's at. The prophets, and this prophet particularly is showing that from generation to generation, that Genesis 1 through 11 problem, it's not getting any better. 
It's not something. Our sin doesn't get better with time. We don't evolve. And in Hosea chapter 11, he associates Israel, who has been known for nothing but faithlessness with Christ, associating the sinner with the righteous, with faithless Israel, with faithful Israel, God's son. So when we read out of Egypt, I call my son, we should be thinking of both Christ and Israel, of both Jesus who is God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, and with faithless Israel. We see God's people and the nation of Israel as, again, a shadow of Christ. The reason this matters, Christian, the reason why this matters, unbeliever sitting here, for someone questioning Jesus and, and what is salvation, maybe you've come here looking for purpose and fulfillment, and, and you're, you're at a broken place and you're considering Jesus. Why does this matter that, that faithless Israel, that all of our story, Israel's just, that's us, that faithful, faithless humanity. Why does it matter that, that the Bible, God's word, would associate our faithlessness with God's righteousness, with God's righteous son who came here to redeem us? Because it's the ground of our salvation. That is the good news of the gospel. Because the problem with our sin is our inability, inability to save ourselves. We are hopeless. Every one of us in this room who claims Christ was once hopeless, wallowing in our sin, deserved of God's judgment. We deserve the waters of God. We deserve to go down and to never come up. Having perfect speech won't save me. Having a good marriage won't justify you. Not being a stuffy theological person that can articulate all the ins and outs of the incarnation and whatever else it is, that won't make you righteous. We stand before a holy God with our sins. And I've used this before. There is a table. And, and we can go and we will stand before the Lord one day. Every one of us in this room, there will be a day when our heart stops and we go before the Lord. All of our works that would exonerate us, all of our works that would condemn us. Well, let's look at the good stuff. My good works are nothing but filthy rags before the Lord. There is no, I can love my wife, but there might be selfish intent in my heart. My thoughts, my attitudes, and my actions, one of those three will betray me in any righteous deed that I do. And over here, my sins. There's so many of them that condemn me. And we can get into this, as, 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 as faithless Israel, we can get into this kind of, this thing where we go, well, you know what? I did some good things. The equivalent would be, church, if you came and you shot my family, and then the next week you say, hey, I'm so sorry about that. Let me take your trash out every Monday. That is what it's like when we try to justify ourselves before a holy God with our works. The offense that we've given to the creator because of our state. We have an inability to save ourselves. We are hopeless. There's not a potential for some of us. This isn't like, hey, you know, eventually, but the end of your life, you might become you know, upper management of a business, you know, if you work hard, if you're one of the top 10% or whatever. No, everyone, 100% of humanity stands condemned at all times apart from a Savior. And Christ came to redeem us, to lead an exodus so that we might be declared righteous. That table has to be clear. And for the Christian, all of us, we didn't find a loophole. God in His grace provided all the righteousness and all the penalties paid for through that cross. And we take that cross and we throw that on the table and we say this righteousness, not of faithless Israel, but of faithful Israel, represents me. I have no other plea than Jesus Christ. I need an alien righteousness. I need another person's righteousness because I stand condemned. Brothers and sisters, when you open those presents next Sunday, 
That's the good news. That's the best gift that we can get is that our debt and our sin is paid for and that Christ, because of Christ, we are declared righteous. Where we're faithless, Christ was faithful. Where we sinned, he was righteous. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness by grace through faith alone. The greater exodus of Matthew 2 is accomplished by the works of another. That's the profound doctrinal claim of this text. That's what Matthew's saying. You want to read the Sermon on the Mount? Hey, don't get angry in your heart. Hey, don't lust after a woman in your mind. The point is, is that you fail miserably at all points in being righteous. And we need an exodus. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is actually that Christ is a greater Moses, that he's a greater teacher. He went up, Matthew 5, he went up on the Mount. Where else in the Bible have we seen a man go up to a mount and give a word of law? Moses, Christ is greater. So Christ being, King Jesus being a better Moses, not only is Jesus man's representative, so not only is he representing faithless Israel as true Israel, he's also representing God to man. Teacher, prophet, king, representing God's word and law to us. So we see in this small section where Joseph is just thinking about his family and obeying the Lord. Little did he know, little did he know what the Lord was doing. But Christ doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just allude to to Jesus being Israel and Moses. This next section, this next fulfillment text, shows us the bedrock of this exodus. Some might argue, well, of course God's leading us from an exodus. He's here to free me from the slavery of poverty and the slavery of uh, systemic power structures of whatever this and that. The next text informs the content of this exodus. It informs the content of this redemption. What are we being freed from? Turn with me to verse 16 through 18. We see another tell of Jesus being compared to Moses in this story. We have King Herod killing these children in Bethlehem and in the district of Galilee. This is exactly the story of Moses. Remember, recall back the book of Exodus. We have God's people, the Hebrew people have been enslaved for 400 years. God's people in the Babylonian captivity of the 400 years of silence. What a, what a comparison there. So 400 years of slavery. And then Pharaoh is worried about an uprising. So he kills all the baby boys. And in their midst, who escaped? But this great redeemer and teacher and God's great prophet Moses the giver of the law, who holds the staff of God in his arm, he makes it out. So does Jesus. Again, Exodus, Israel, Moses, all of it is fulfilled in Christ. That light is pointing to the cross. And so Herod starts putting these pieces together in this text that the the Magi made it another way. Again, angels working overtime directing them, hey, go this way. And he gets angry, and he starts killing these children. It's a horrific story, again, meant to echo the story we find in the Exodus. And we find that what Matthew quotes here, this is the, 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 these three sections that we're looking at has, have the same template. Some kind of context happens. The Magi left. The Magi didn't go and talk to Herod. Then there's an action. Then there's a response. And then there's a fulfillment. And so we see here that Herod was mad because the Magi didn't come. So he gets angry. He kills children, thus to fulfill what Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 31 of Rachel weeping for the loss of her children, the nation of Israel. This wasn't Matthew just going, oh, that's sad. Where, where, let, me, let me look through my you know, Bible. What's a sad text that I could you know, maybe comfort Israel with? Of course, it was meant to, to show a fulfillment of that. But Matthew is pointing there to help you, to so that you would go back to Jeremiah 31, that you would look at that verse, and that you would look at the broader context of that verse. 
That's the point. Rachel died in childbirth in Genesis 34 with Benjamin. And Jeremiah picks up on that with the deportation to Babylon. And then Matthew's picking up on this. Why? Why is Rama mentioned here? Notice again, here's the fifth location. Every location has had a specific meaning in the first two chapters of Matthew. What's Rama's significance? Why is that mentioned? To say it simply, it's synonymous with suffering. When you read Rama, it is the location of suffering. The historical significance of Rama was when the Babylonian captivity was happening, when Babylon came, destroyed the temple, and collected the people, and brought them to Babylon. They collected them and gathered them in a small little town just north of Jerusalem as a launching point to Babylon, a small little town called Ramah. So when you think of Ramah, why is Rachel weeping in Jeremiah 31? Because she's looking at all her children. She's looking at the nation of Israel leaving the promised land. She's seeing the temples destroyed. God's presence seems to be gone, and God's people are leaving the land, and thus starts the exile. And so what Matthew's done in quoting this, he's done two things. Again, he's associated Jesus with Moses, and the second bit is that he's associated this new exodus of Jesus to the exile of God's people in Babylon. The first one's, you know, the significance of the first point, we already get it. It's the new Moses. The second one, what's significant about that? What Matthew, again, is doing is drawing us to, to chapter 31. And if you, if you know, <laughs> if you know chapter 31 of Jeremiah, you, if you threw a dart in that chapter, the, the likelihood of you hitting something negative and not positive, small percentage. Matthew won the lottery in a sense. That chapter is one of the most positive chapters in all of Scripture talking about the new covenant. And Matthew picks up one verse about Rama, and he's going to transform it and he's going he's to show how it's fulfilled in Christ. Matthew's teeing up his whole gospel with this, the massacre of children follows a pattern in Israel's history. This is the reason why it's quoted is because God's people have always known suffering under slavery. This massacre isn't just out of the ordinary in one sense. Matthew is connecting the massacre with biblical theme, themes that we see over and over and over again. Matthew is teeing up the whole gospel that this massacre of children, this weeping and lamenting of God's people, this persecution and this perspective of this isn't how things are supposed to be is a microcosm, Christian, for you of a sin-sick world. The death of children, the fact that Herod killed children, what was, think of Genesis 1, Genesis 2. When, when God, what did he tell Adam and Eve to do? Be fruitful and multiply. And the death of children, and this is just in general, is a reversal of that creation mandate. It is God's intent flipped upside down. And so what we see here is a sad story for Israel. And yes, it calls back to the exile. But brothers and sisters, every one of us in this room can relate to things that shouldn't be because of sin. It shouldn't be this way. We're suffering and we can relate to their suffering. And Matthew, in this fulfillment quote, is picking up that pattern, going all the way back to Genesis and again showing how it's fulfilled in Christ. But there's so much that we can even pull from, from these, these verses regarding that reversal of the creation mandate, of children dying, of suffering. Christmas is coming, and for some it's a happy time, and for others it's a sad time. Maybe you're thinking about family members that have been stricken with cancer, grandparents, Alzheimer's, loss of a friend or a loved one that's not going to be sitting around the table, how you miss your mom or your dad, their jokes and their, their contribution to the time together, never seeing family because you have to work Christmas. Think about the loss of children in this passage, about Rachel weeping easy one-to-one -one connection with our country in abortions. 
children dying in the womb. And for Christians, we believe in the image of God in every person. The value of life. You think about other aspects of, of the family unit and of children. You think about broken families. That's not how God intended it to be. Foster care. Orphans. Think about all the, the wonderful advances we've had with infertility, with in vitro fertilization, but yet if, if those embryos are life and you have to have 15 of them and you put them in a, a frozen state of life in order to have one, we're sacrificing 15 for one life. It's not the way it should be. And for any parent here, the loss of a child, a miscarriage, stillbirths, you're dreaming of that kid, laughing, what is he or she going to be like? I wonder what kind of life they're going to live and what kind of dad am I going to be or mom you're going to be? And then you get the news that they're not moving or they enter the world and they're already gone. Rama. Rama. We feel it. Yet that's not the greatest suffering that we can incur, Christian. Those all are just pointing to our suffering of our sin. Sin is our greatest enemy. Sin is the reason why creation is flipped upside down. We can relate to the weeping and lamenting of Rachel because it speaks to the brokenness of the world that we live in and to the oppression of sin. I hate sin. And I hate what it does to people because sin hurts people. But family, Christmas is coming. In our Rama, Christ came. The King has come. John Calvin says this in his Institutes of the Christian Religion regarding Christ's kingly role for you, believer. So if you are at all suffering, if Rama is the word that you're associated with this morning, this is for you. Thus, it is that we may patiently pass through this life with its misery, hunger, cold, contempt, reproaches, and other troubles, content with this one thing, that our King will never leave us destitute, but will provide for our needs until our warfare ended. We are called to triumph. Such is the nature, praise God, of His rule, that He shares with us all that He has received from the Father. Lift up your head. Be encouraged. Gentle and lowly is our Savior, and kind is our King. And even now in your brokenness, He is with you. That is Christmas. Regardless if there's presents or people, you could be alone in a cardboard box. Christ is King, and He loves you, Christian. So what is the context? Caleb, you've mentioned everything else but the context. What's the context of Jeremiah 31? Look with me. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31, and we're going to look at verse 15. That's what Matthew quotes. There's two other places you need to look. Verse 15, and we're just going to finish the thought. Verse 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back, your children, from the land of the enemy. There is hope 
for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. So Matthew wants you to see that the suffering is there, and it is what it is, but there's a future day of hope. Church, what day is that when Christ came on Christmas morning? Your hope, the only hope that we have, is in the coming of Christ Jesus. So that when Christ was born and he ushers in this sweet exodus where he represents you and he represents God and he teaches you and he leads you by the hand, he can say as he did later in Matthew's gospel, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There's Moses. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You feel overwhelmed? You feel the weight of the world? Here's Christ's promise for you. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jeremiah goes on to say in chapter 31, verse 30 through 34, I want you to notice the connections to Egypt. This is the good news of the new covenant here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. How is this exodus going to happen? It's going to happen through the new covenant. He's ushering in the new covenant. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, ding, 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 my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one say to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them To the greatest, declares the Lord. This exodus, the contents is this. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What is the content of this wonderful exodus? The exodus is the redemption of our sin and from our sin through the sacrifice of Christ, doesn't stop there, and the gift of Christ that we receive in the place of our sin. Next Sunday is nothing less than the worship of this King of Kings. We're debtors to grace, supplying everything that we needed and giving us all of himself. So we see how he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We see how this is a new beginning for us, that Christ has brought a a fresh genesis, a new exodus, our representative, our teacher, restoring our Rama. The whole point is to free us from the oppression of our sins, that we no longer are like Rachel weeping in need, but that we might be restored through this new covenant. But how... It, this is, I mean, like, think, think about this. And it, like, it's really hard for us to get outside of the I know my Bible kind of, if you've been raised in church, you're just like, yeah, this is awesome. I'm all about this. But just think about like, like God redeeming us, the new covenant. Those are like diamonds. Those, that's 24 karat bars. This is awesome. Like objectively, people should be able to see this, right? How does he do it? How is this seen in Matthew's gospel? Because this is just the birth narrative. What's the rest of the gospel play out? If this is who it is, if this is who the Messiah is, what is he like? How is this new covenant ushered in? Do they like throw a party for him? Is he a king? Do they give him a crown? Does he get a palace? Does he rebuild the temple? How does he do it? He does it as a lowly king. (laughs) Point three, the last section shows us the manner of this new covenant being ushered in, this exodus, this gloriousness, that he would be great through being low. 
the word of God would come and be mute, be a child, that he would escape Egypt, brothers and sisters, a lowly king. He, the manner he does this is by being despised, by dying. He escaped Egypt. You track him? He escaped Egypt. He didn't die, but he lives to die. He lives to die. This last fulfillment section, Herod dies, angel coming in again, warns Joseph, Joseph's head, heads back, goes, oh my goodness, Herod's dead, his son's ruling, angel comes in again, don't worry, <laughs> go, go somewhere else. <laughs> so he goes to Nazareth. Again, I love, I love what Joseph's doing. He, he takes him to the farthest place, thinking of his family. And that the Messiah, the fulfillment quote, is that he'd be called a Nazarene, that he would be from Nazareth. Six locations, each with meaning. What is the significance of Nazareth? Egypt, the Exodus, Rama was suffering. The emphasis here, notice too, there's not, we have Hosea, we have Jeremiah, and then we have the prophets. Matthew is picking up a theme from the prophets at large of what this Messiah would be like. And the emphasis is on him being called. The nature of, of how people would look at him. The nature of his ministry. And I think the key to understanding standing Nazareth, you could, you could go in there and say, well, it looks like the Hebrew word for branch in Isaiah 11, or maybe it's the Nazarene vow. I think it's simpler than that. I think it said he'd be called a Nazarene being from Nazareth. John chapter 1. Verse 45, 46, Philip found Nathanael. Philip and Nathanael just being called his disciples. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Again, we are primed to go positive. I like that. If you're, if you are Nathanael, you're going, what? Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth. When we think of Egypt, Exodus, when we think of Rama, we think of suffering. When we think of Nazareth, we think, ew. Nazareth was a dead-end town. If your son graduated from like the Harvard Extension Center in Jerusalem, wanting to start a tech startup, and he's like, Dad, I'm gonna go to, I'm gonna go to, I'm gonna go to Nazareth. Well, son, let's let's look at some other places. There, there's a lot of other places you could go, some better places that you could be from, but he's from Nazareth. His ministry would start from Nazareth. This glorious exodus, this institution of the new covenant would come from a man from Nazareth. His ministry and his death on the cross would be viewed as foolishness. Matthew 27, we see this Nazarene. It's not that he's just from Nazareth, but that that entails the whole of Jesus. Matthew 27 says this. This is how, the, this is how the, the, the rival political institution viewed him. Then the soldiers of the, of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. The irony of that. And they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head. They put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before, them, before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. They took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and they put his clothes, his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified, to crucify him. And then verse 41, if we continue... We see the religious institution. How did they view this glorious new exodus, this new greater Moses, this, this new covenant instituting Messiah? So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers 
who who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Surely, surely, church, this isn't the king of Matthew 1. The son of David knew Moses. What about this whole new exodus, new covenant? This can't be the promised king. My Messiah would never look like that. Oh, church, but he is. The king in all his beauty, right there on the cross to die for you, to represent you. His blood institutes the new covenant. We just got all kinds of pictures here. We got the baptism. We got communion. That this meal represents that, that gloriousness. All Again, 24 karat bars, you'd be thinking all these wonderful things, yet through suffering, he institutes it. Through a simple image of bread and juice, we're called to remember but I want to highlight, so we've heard the songs going back to that. This is great. This is a great movie, Matthew 2. We're hearing the themes of Exodus and of Moses and of Israel and of the exile with Rama. But Matthew this whole time has been playing one other theme. It's slow. It's meek. It's probably violins. The song of Isaiah's suffering servant. Been playing the whole time. In the back, one of the dearest Old Testament prophecies of who Jesus would be. And I think this is, out of all the prophets that Matthew is mentioning in this last fulfillment quote, I think Isaiah is in the front. Isaiah 53, verse 2 through 6. I want you to hear Exodus. I want you to hear Rama. I want you to hear Christ forgiving you of your sins through the new covenant. I want you to think of the cross of Christ in this text. He who had no form or majesty, that we would look at him, and no beauty that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. Your grief, Christian. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows." Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But we, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Brothers and sisters, that is Christmas. That is Christmas. It doesn't get more Christmas than that. That peace has come through this Christ who is king and redeems us and teaches us and is bruised for faithless Israel so that we might be looked upon by the Father and dressed in his robes of righteousness and brought to his table as a son and enjoy the inheritance of a treasured son of God. All because Christ came. That's the music of Christmas morning that he has brought us peace. And there's no other music in light of our Ramas, in light of our sufferings, there's no other music that should be louder than the theme of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, saving us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for the treasured gift of Jesus Christ who has saved us from our sins, who has died for us. All the gloriousness, all the gloriousness of a redemption for an unworthy people suffering in the oppression of sin, Lord, that you would love us to send us the Son and to give us peace, that you would incur death and go under the water of your wrath 
and that you would rise victorious being the firstborn, the firstborn son of the resurrection, that we might know that our hope one day is that you will return, Lord, and that we will be with you for eternity in heaven. Lord, bless, bless our time as a church recalling your son, Lord. Help us to feast more on this treasured joy of Christmas. In your name I pray, amen.